Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Alice Tubbs was deep into a Pharaoh game, and she knew something wasn't right. She was losing, and Alice Tubbs did not lose. She made her living playing cards, and she smelled a rat. On the first hand, she lost $500. On the second, she lost 1000 On the third, she studied the box that held the deck of cards. As the dealer slid a card out, similar to the process of modern-day blackjack, there was a little movement in the box. The motion wasn't as natural or fluid as it should have been. She caught him. She whipped out a 38 caliber revolver that she kept on her at all times. She pointed it at the dealer, who was no doubt shocked at the turn of events. Then she said, If you'd done that cleverly, there wouldn't be any kick. I can admire a clever crook, I'll admit that. But a clumsy one like you? Now before I pull this trigger, you give me back my money. And he did. The gambling hall gave her back all her money. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially at this time of year when I'm getting crushed by allergies. In Arizona, we have these wonderful trees called Palo Verde trees. They have yellow flowers that look nice, but produce yellow pollen that makes me cough and sneeze and makes my eyes so itchy I almost can't stand it. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to the Legends of the Old West podcast. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer, and today we're telling a few more stories about some of the colorful characters of Deadwood. Plus, I'll take you to the town of Deadwood so you can hear from a few people who live and breathe Deadwood history. Alice Tubbs was a classic Old West character, even though she was born in Great Britain. She was a blue-eyed beauty who drank a lot and smoked big cigars. She was a gambler, a madam, and a bootlegger, and one of the many great characters in Deadwood lore. By the time she arrived in Deadwood in 1890, she was already known as Poker Alice, but she acquired the last name Tubbs when she married Warren Tubbs. Warren scratched out a living as a painter, but it was Alice's winnings as a master poker player that supported the seven children they had together. Alice loved poker, and she was good at it. Rich men, who naturally thought they were better at cards, learned their lessons the hard way as she repeatedly cleaned them out. Then she'd go on shopping sprees in New York City and come back with closets full of new dresses. Later in life, she ran a bordello in Sturgis, South Dakota, called Poker's Palace, that was incredibly popular with soldiers. One night, it was filled to capacity, so she locked the doors to keep out any more customers. Disgruntled soldiers outside threw rocks through the windows and cut the electrical wires so the place would go dark. Alice grabbed a rifle and fired out the windows to make them stop. Unfortunately, she killed a sergeant and wounded a private. When she was hauled into court to face the charges, the judge started grilling her about the layout of her house, the brothel. She shut down that line of questioning real quick with this retort. Hell, judge, you've been in my place so many times, there ain't a window or a door in the whole damn house you don't know about. Besides, it was so dark in that room, nobody saw who did the shooting. Now, charge us with something or let us go. She was charged with simply keeping a house of ill repute. She paid a fine, and that was that, though the judge probably won in the long run, as the brothel was forced to shut down shortly thereafter. Poker Alice was as colorful as they came, and she lived a hard life, there's no doubt. But she had fun, too. When she started up a game, her favorite line was, Praise the Lord and place your bets. I'll take your money with no regrets. In the previous episode, we barely scratched the surface of Seth Bullock, so let's finish up some of the highlights of his incredible life. If you remember, he was raised by a strict military father, so he was all about law and order. He was tall and charismatic and rarely used his gun. According to his grandson, he rarely needed to. Here's the famous quote. 
he could outstare a mad cobra or a rogue elephant. With those abilities, you can see why he didn't need to draw on a lawbreaker very often. The murder of Wild Bill Hickok jump-started Bullock's career. Hickok was killed on August 2, 1876, and by the end of the month, Bullock was the de facto sheriff of Deadwood. He wasn't the first man to hold the office, but he was the best. One of the two men who preceded him was Con Stapleton, who was playing poker with Wild Bill at the time Bill was killed. Bullock enlisted some fearless deputies, and they started cleaning up Deadwood. But Bullock was also a realist. He knew that a mining camp like this had to have an entertainment district, so to speak. So he made a deal with Al Swearingen. They drew an imaginary line across Main Street that divided the town into two districts. The lower end would be the seedier neighborhoods that would be home to most of the saloons. That area was called the Badlands, and it was basically under the control of Swearingen. The upper end of Main Street would be the more respectable area. Based on his work in Deadwood, Bullock was appointed the Sheriff of Lawrence County by Governor Pennington in 1877. In 1884, he was elevated to Deputy U.S. Marshal in charge of all of Western Dakota Territory. It was also in that year that he made a new, lifelong friend. Bullock was out on the range pursuing a horse thief named Crazy Steve when he ran across a party of men who had just captured the very outlaw he was looking for. Bullock started talking to the deputy sheriff who caught Crazy Steve. That man turned out to be an ambitious explorer who was hungry for adventure. He came from a wealthy family in New York City, but he had gone west to see the frontier before it disappeared. That man was Theodore Roosevelt, and Roosevelt and Bullock became fast friends. Back in Deadwood, Star and Bullock's hardware store was destroyed by the fire of 1894. So, Bullock took the opportunity to build the finest hotel in town in its place. The Bullock Hotel would boast three stories and 64 rooms that were steam-heated. It had a bathroom on each floor. That was real luxury when it opened for business in 1896, and you can still stay in the hotel today though it now boasts bathrooms in every room. Legend has it that Bullock's ghost haunts the hotel, so watch out for that too. Two years later, Teddy Roosevelt led his Rough Riders to Cuba in the Spanish-American War. He appointed Bullock captain of the Black Hills Rough Riders. Bullock was 51 years old by that time, but his troop never actually made it to the battlefields. They made it as far as the training ground in Louisiana, but that was it. Bullock would have fought if called upon, there's no doubt about that, but he didn't have to. When Roosevelt was elected president in 1901, Bullock and 50 cowboys, including early Western movie star Tom Mix, rode in the inaugural parade. In 1905, Roosevelt appointed his old friend, Marshal of South Dakota. Bullock held the post for 10 years, during which it was still a very dangerous job. The Wild West was not gone yet in the Dakotas. During Bullock's tenure, more than a dozen other marshals were killed in the line of duty, but he survived. For his courage, integrity, and service, Roosevelt renamed Scruton Peak in the Black Hills to Seth Bullock Lookout. Roosevelt said of his friend, Captain Bullock is a true Westerner, 
the finest type of frontiersman. Roosevelt died in 1919, and Bullock quickly enlisted the Society of Black Hills Pioneers to erect a monument to his friend on Sheep Mountain near Deadwood. Bullock needed them to hurry. He was dying of cancer, and he knew he didn't have long to live. The workers finished the project in a rush, and it was dedicated in September 1919, two months before Bullock passed away. When Bullock died, the town honored another of his requests. He wanted to be buried with a view of Roosevelt's monument. Today, if you follow a long, winding path, 750 feet above Mount Moriah Cemetery, where Wild Bill and Calamity Jane are buried, you'll find the grave of Seth Bullock. It looks out on Sheep Mountain, which was later renamed Mount Roosevelt, something Bullock surely would have liked. If there was a Mount Rushmore of Deadwood, it would have to include the image of Seth Bullock, as well as his longtime business partner, Saul Starr. From almost the moment Saul Starr set foot in Deadwood, he distinguished himself as a businessman and civic leader. Along with their hardware store, Starr and Bullock started the Office of Starr and Bullock, Auctioneers and Commission Merchants. They also started a flour business, the kind of flour that's used for baking. Starr was generous, genial, jovial, social, and always lent a helping hand. It's not hard to see why he was a popular man in town. He became postmaster of Deadwood and served as mayor for 13 years. He was chairman of the first state Republican convention when South Dakota was admitted to the Union in 1889. It was said of him in 1901, any brief epitome of Mr. Starr's career gives only a meager idea of his strong personality, which has drawn to him in close friendship more associates than it is the good fortune of many men to enjoy. And since he is still in the prime of his life, whatever good fortune the future has in store for him, social or political, will be a success rejoiced by all. That's pretty high praise. In 1890, he and Bullock founded the town of Belfouche. It quickly became the county seat of Butte County. Starr passed away in 1917, two years before his friend Bullock, and was buried in St. Louis. A friend of Starr's in Montana put it eloquently. He left us for his last lone prospector tour, and if the streets up there are paved with gold, Saul will be right at home. And here's one final nugget about Saul Starr. I like this story. In 1905, Starr received a letter from a company in Albany, New York, that said it wanted to do business with him. The Albany Perforated Wrapping Company wanted to send him a one-year supply of toilet paper so that everyone in Deadwood would use its product. And Starr's cost for these 12,000 sheets of toilet paper was just $1. The company would even pay all the transportation and delivery fees. That's how badly it wanted to be in business with Saul Starr and Deadwood. If we're going to fill the third spot on the Mount Rushmore of Deadwood, a good candidate would surely be W.E. Adams. Dime novels and TV shows never talk about William Emery Adams. He wasn't a gunfighter, he wasn't an outlaw. He wasn't a lawman, and he didn't die in a hail of bullets. But if you know anything about Deadwood, 
or if you've ever been there, you know the town would not be what it is without him. The Adams Museum is named after him. His home, the Adams House, is a museum in and of itself. Two of the interviews on this episode were recorded there. His influence was enormous, and his life was so full that I'll never be able to do it justice here. He was born in Michigan and grew up in Minnesota before moving to Deadwood with his brother James in 1877. Together, they opened the Banner Grocery. They had the same philosophy as Saul Starr and Al Swearingen, though they went about it more like Starr than Swearingen. Instead of making their fortunes by freezing in a creek or digging in a hole to find gold, they wouldn't mine the miners. Their business was vital to the community and profitable. Unfortunately, like many others, it was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1879. But the Adams brothers were undeterred. They built their next store out of brick to protect it from fire. James moved to California in 1889, but William stayed in Deadwood and kept expanding his business. He served six terms as mayor. He helped build the Mount Roosevelt Memorial. He helped lay the first brick streets in Deadwood. He was on the boards of banks, civic organizations, and the Chamber of Commerce. In 1901, he got out of the retail business and began a wholesale grocery operation that supplied goods to the entire Black Hills region. But his life was not entirely full of grand achievements. He experienced immense tragedy as well. His wife and two daughters both passed away before he did, leaving him alone in his later years. But he found a new lease on life when he began a whirlwind romance with a much younger woman. It was his second wife, Mary, who encouraged him to build a museum in Deadwood, one that still stands today. While there are a hundred crazy or fun stories about early Deadwood, I want to wrap up with this little gem. It's one of the more absurd gunfights you'll ever hear about. Johnny Varnes was one of the head honchos in the criminal underworld of Deadwood. There are reports that he and his partner Tim Brady tried to hire men to kill Wild Bill Hickok in the summer of 1876. One of the men they supposedly tried to hire was Charlie Storms. Charlie wisely said thanks, but no thanks. Then two weeks after Hickok was killed, Charlie Storms and Johnny Varnes got into a shooting match of their own. And of course, it started over a card game. Charlie and Johnny had a disagreement so they took it outside. They had a shootout in the middle of Gold Street. Guns blazed and windows shattered. Ten shots were fired in all, and not a single one of them hit either man. They were completely unharmed. Johnny and Charlie threw up their hands and called it quits. The only casualty was Joe Ludwig, who took a stray bullet in the hip as he stood inside the Wertheimer & Company store. It was a memorable fight, but one that no one really wanted to remember. Thanks for listening to some more stories about Deadwood history. And now stick around for some stories about the town's history and the Deadwood TV show from some locals who visited the production. All right, everyone, welcome to a very special interview with Daryl Nelson, Exhibits Director of Deadwood History. 
He runs all the exhibits at the Adams Museum. If you have ever been to the Adams Museum, you will know that it is the centerpiece of history in Deadwood. I was just there recently. There's some fantastic exhibits. I can't wait to go back and do a thorough exploration of the whole thing. So, Daryl, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this. Thank you, thank you, this is a pleasure. So we, we before we turn on the microphones, we decided that we were gonna talk about, we were gonna do a little compare and contrast between the quintessential good guy of W.E. Adams in Deadwood history and the quintessential bad guy in Al Swearingen. So let's start with the, just the general compare and contrast. Can we do a quick summary? The, the listeners have probably already heard various okay. parts about, their, about their, okay. um, their various histories. So what's the qu com quick compare and contrast between these uh, two gentlemen? Swearingen was the, uh, ran uh, saloons uh, and dance halls on Main Street in early Deadwood. Uh, known for violence himself, and uh, his 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 gym theater was the site of ongoing fights and conflicts. Uh, he was a, a, a shyster, a con man, a mean guy, and he did everything he was supposed to do as uh, as a bad guy. Adams, on the other hand, same town, same time, uh, came as a prospector. Uh, he very quickly saw what was going to make money. He was a successful businessman. He spent his life being a businessman and a civic leader. He was a good guy. He was generous. He was the opposite of Swearingen. Same town, same time, different right. parts of the city. Uh, but it, history has not treated them the same. And I'm intrigued by why we have done that. Exactly, that was the, one of the things we discussed before we turned on the microphones was, why does history remember Al Swearingen so much or so prominently and has almost forgotten W.E. Adams? I, I'm wondering if that's a commentary on on us and what it is that we like in a story. In in some ways, Swearingen is entertaining, um, but, but he's quite predictable. Right. Um, and and Adams, uh, he's not entertaining, but he did surprising things. He did good things. Uh, he was proactive. He was visionary. Uh, in some ways, very contemporary man. So I'm not sure it's about the qualities of the men specifically. I think it's what we have come to prefer in our contemporary media as, you know, th this qualifies as a good story. And, and obviously one of the big things that we've, that I certainly have become fascinated in was the TV show Deadwood. So as mm -hmm. we're talking about these different things, we can see mm -hmm. that's a, a huge example mm -hmm. as to what we've been what people have been interested in, that obviously Al Swearingen was a very prominent mm -hmm. figure in that show. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll admit that I, I, I loved every mm -hmm. time he was on the screen. It was fun and interesting. Yeah. And W.E. Adams is not there yeah, at well, all. It, he has that, no presence in the show whatsoever. What that show can't do because of, of the nature of a show is that the, the other part of town was full of good people starting libraries, starting yeah. churches, raising Grocery children, like Adams the did. businesses. Um, and they both were fully aware of each other's presence. Um, but, for the most part, good people don't make good stories. I'm not sure what that's about. Yeah, but at the same time, when we talked when I when I visited the museum and saw all the different exhibits there, we talked about um, some of the things that the TV TV show got right. There were yes, several right. things. For instance, we I, I said in in the in the episode in the introductory episode about Deadwood that one of the big things that the TV show got right was the feel of the town, the claustrophobic Absolutely. nature of right. it, the narrowness of Main Street, the narrowness right. of the Gulch, everybody living right. on top yep. of each other. And, the and it, was a, it was a filthy place. Yeah. And in fact, the profanity was famous, not the same words, but the same level of profanity. The, the, the Deadwood streets were famously muddy. One of the first officials that the city council appointed was a health inspector. Right. Because, and, and some of the first laws were about, you can't leave dead animals here. You can't let this effluent go out on the Main Street. Um, 
so it, it, was, it was a mixed bag. You know, Deadwood was famous, is somewhat justified to be famous for these things, but at the same time, another part of town was thriving and they had permanence in mind. The, the, the prospectors came, they didn't come to build a town. They came, you know, the, the, the quintessential uh, private enterprise venture, come, make money, and leave. Right. That was their goal. And other people came to start businesses and stay. So part of what I find about Deadwood that's dynamic is that they were both going on and there's several visions for what, what being here was about uh, and several kinds of commitments to, uh, to the community. Um, it, it's, right. it's a fascinating mix. Oh, the, yeah, there, as, as, certainly as we've been here walking around, it's, it's really fascinating to stand in the middle of Main Street. Right. This, this morning, as, obviously as we're recording this, as people are gonna hear it, it's not the day that, we, that they're listening to it, but we went down early morning and stood in the middle of Main Street and you could see just how narrow the street is. You can see right. where all the different businesses that have become famous in Deadwood are within about 150 feet of each other. Right. You can just bounce from one to the other. Right, right. And you if can, you're standing you downtown, you could look from one ridge to the other. And Deadwood's not a, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a narrow strip yes. in, in a gulch. Uh, yeah. So there's reason Yeah, for you that. can see it typically, or a lot of times in the show, you would hear this, uh, a phrase rim to rim across, right. the, across the gulch. And you can really stand in the middle of Main Street right. and on, if you stand in the middle of Gold Street, you can look straight across the gulch from one rim to the other and you right. see just how narrow it is. And you can see, you can imagine just how muddy and filthy it would have been yeah, to have yeah. been there working in the Main Street. And, and it really is, it almost really is a lower end. There's a, the, the Main Street slopes upward right. toward the quote unquote respectable area right, of town. Right. So lower and, Main and Street And that's the part that's called the Badlands and there are reasons for that. Another uh, point that I wanted to uh, yeah. go back to was that uh, another aspect that the HBO series got right was the way prostitutes were treated. They were an abused right. bunch of women, and Swearingen was right in the middle of that. I think it was right. 1893, the date, I'm, I'm not sure the exact date, but uh, in the newspaper it says, he brings 11 girls, teenagers from Chicago. That's typical of his technique. Uh, and so the law had to come in, and remarkably, not all the women wanted to get away from the situation. Really? But that is typical of him. Um, throughout the 1880s and 1890s, um, he, make, he as a person does not make news as much as the, the ongoing fights and brawls right. and drunkenness and considerable petty, well, sometimes not petty violence that happened around his theater. So that was his note. At the same time, Adams is the other in the town, making money, making right. money, making money, trying this, trying that, expanding uh, two different worlds. Yeah, two completely. Yeah, he's, I, I know in my research I read that he would, that Al Swearingen would place ads in newspapers yes. for dance hall girls or housekeepers right. or anything other than what he in, intended for them to do once he got them to right. Deadwood. And so he not only just physically brought and recruited women from places like Chicago, right. which you, would you t they'd actually talk about in this series of Deadwood, yeah. but yeah. he would place ads and then lure women to town yeah. with this promise. And, and, and it is the rare woman who yeah. said, hell no, I'm yeah. not doing this. One, a famous uh, case of a woman, Inez Sexton. Okay. Um, she had been a singer with, with quite a pretty high aspiration for herself. And she got here and said, I'm not doing this. And the citizens helped her to find other work and to get out of town. Um, really? Yeah, so it, it's a good story. But the HBO story really nailed that because the prostitutes, uh, which were given all kinds of kind of whimsical names by the newspaper, resulted in a number of many suicides, anonymous right. uh, uh, grave sites up in, in our version of Boot Hill. Right. It, it was that a tough sense. life for yeah, them. Yeah, no, I, can, I can only imagine. can only imagine what it would have been like. Th there was not. one situation in which W. Adams actually confronts Swearingen about a debt. Really? And so the two met. 
and uh, W. Adams, you know, he was this, this proper guy. He did not back down. So there was some kind of, I forget what the loan was for, but Swearingen used all of the furniture in the Gem Theater as collateral. Really? And, and Adams gets tired of waiting. 2300 bucks. Okay. Quite a bit of money then. Yeah. So Adams confronts him and says, Al, or whatever he would say, I need the money now. And Swearingen says, no. So he comes back again and says, all right, give me a thousand bucks and we'll call it good. Swearingen says, no, 500 bucks. And Adams says, no, I, no, I want it all. Uh, this is it. So he gets the sheriff and they, they, they bring wagons and they take all Swearingen's furniture. <laughs> they actually so confiscated he, it all. He kind of wins, but by the end of the day, Swearingen had filled it up again and he was ready for the show that night. So he didn't actually have to pay off the, no, the, he didn't. the debt and money. The furniture no, was no, he, he, he just he, replaced the furniture. No, he was repeated to close down or brought into court and it didn't deter him. That, so he, he, he was focused. Um, and it, you know, it'd be nice to pass judgment on him and say, well, he was all this. He had his reasons, and th th there was probably at least twice in his life when he was compassionate and considerate. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, he was tenacious. He did one thing well. And it's, 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 I don't know his background. He, he was family of eight kids. I don't know how, how he was raised or what his, his expectations for values were. But he was doing what he knew how to do. Unfortunately, right. a lot of people got hurt and abused along the way. And right. in Adam's case... Um, he, he, a lot of good things happen. In fact, he, to me, he's a better example of a man who's bigger than life. Because when he died in, in 34, uh, 1934, uh, he, he gave his wife uh, $40,000 in securities, the house, the mansion, and his cars. She invested well in Disney and in IBM. Right, right. Made a boatload of money, and we are still getting money to this day from the foundation that she established. So in, in, in the biggest sense of the word, she, their life, they are bigger than life because the effect of, of, of their values is still being felt today. Perfect, that's a great, that's a great note to end on. Yeah, we've seen a lot of those contributions as we've been around town. Right. That's right, I had forgotten that part of my research, but I'm very glad you brought that up. We'll, we'll wrap it up on that, on that note. Okay. That's a great Good. way. They really are larger than life characters. They They've Thank had you. a profound impact on Deadwood, certainly the Deadwood area, and it's still happening. It's still continuing it's, to this it's, day. It's ongoing, yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Joe. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, I'm here with Ty Sanford, the Assistant Director of Deadwood Alive. We're going to get into a little more detail about the trial of Jack McCall and some other fun stories related to Deadwood, but we're going to start with this, uh, this element that I found particularly curious when I was doing my research about 
a potential conspiracy in Deadwood after Hickok arrived was some of the criminal underworld wanted to assassinate him, essentially. They tried to hire people to kill Hickok. And the two names that rise to the top when we're always talking about this are Tim Brady and Johnny Varnes. So what more can you tell us about this potential conspiracy where maybe Brady and Varnes or other people in Deadwood tried to hire assassins to kill uh, Hickok? Well, everybody knew about Wild Bill. Uh, he'd been made very famous in the old dime novels, uh, made a name for himself as a lawman. And there was more money to be had at the time for people if there was no official law and order in Deadwood. Uh, so in order to hopefully try to keep that from happening, they figured the best way was to kill Wild Bill. Of course, they didn't know that Bill had no designs on a job as lawman there. Right, they thought he was maybe there to be a marshal at some point. Mm, because of his history. Right. Uh, he just wanted to mine and make some money for his new bride. So it was all kind of a sad, wasted effort on their part. Were you able to find any other um, evidence of, of any of this kind of conspiracy? Any other reports about any, any of these activities? Well, when McCall fled the camp, he went over into Wyoming territory, uh, eventually wound up in Laramie City. And he gave a report to the paper there in Laramie, and he told the reporter about a sum of almost $800 that had gone missing from his person. Uh, where he came up with that money, we're not entirely sure. Uh, given McCall's kind of seedy element, uh, he could have either stolen it or he could have been assassination money. Right. Again, we're not entirely sure because when is McCall telling the truth and when is he lying? Right, you know, of course. Uh, he goes on, McCall says that uh, Bill took him for all he was worth and is like, well, you know, fine, whatever. And he slapped him across the face and apparently Hickok took it kindly. Well, no. <laughs> Given how we know what Bill is like, there's no way McCall would have slapped him and got away with it. No. So he tells that just a sentence after almost talking about losing a sum of $800. And yeah, when's he telling the truth? Right. We never quite know. Right. So let's, let's jump into the, to the kind of trial itself of Jack McCall. So what was the most compelling part of the trial to you? You've done a ton of research about this. You perform the trial of Jack McCall for, for people who come to the town of Deadwood. What's been the most interesting part to you? I still find it interesting that they actually found him not guilty. Uh, despite all the evidence that was brought forth and the defense not trying to say he didn't do it, but that they used uh, somewhat of an affirmative defense that he only did it because Bill had killed a brother of his. Uh, being in a mining camp, it's uh, somewhat of an acceptable defense for a vengeance killing. Uh, jury nullification was very much a thing then and is now. And the jury must have figured that he Given the fact that Bill killed his brother, whether that was true or not, uh, which we found out later it wasn't, uh, they figured that he was not guilty. Uh, my own kind of personal theory on that is we're not too far removed from the Civil War. You have General Sherman has marched to the sea, destroyed so much of the South. Right. These boys went home to nothing. There was nothing around for them. So what do you try to do? You go from boomtown to boomtown trying to make back a little bit of what you lost. And I figure those boys came to Deadwood Camp trying to make back what they lost. Everybody knew that Bill was a Yankee. He fought for the North. He was right. a staunch abolitionist. And some of them might have tried to weasel their way onto that jury. They knew that McCall was from the South. Uh, you know, Bill's a Yankee. He shot a brother of McCall's. Maybe he's not guilty. Sure, okay. I, I don't have a lot to point to to say that that is, but that's been my kind of personal theory about what might have happened. 
And so uh, one of the things, one of the probably the most obvious thing that we have to that we have to talk about is actually why McCall killed Hickok. It's it seems to be almost taken for granted that it was the perceived slight that happened in the poker game previously that Hickok and the guys at the table on August 1st cleaned out McCall because he was a terrible poker player and Hickok gave him a little bit of money afterwards to go eat and kind of cool off and then maybe come back and play later once he'd regrouped. And so that's the only thing we really have to go on that maybe says why McCall would have killed him. So let's just ask the question flat out. Why do you think Jack McCall actually killed Wild Bill Hickok? I would say for the reasons you just said, uh, McCall being a relatively young kid, he was in his mid-20s, and being cleaned out by someone of Hickok's nature, uh, what Bill was trying to do was a kindness, and McCall saw it as an offense. Uh, Bill, through his years, he was old and wise. Even at 39, even 39 yeah. he was old and wise. And he, uh, he was just trying to take care of the kid. He knew he was out way far away from home, and he just wanted to help him out. And McCall was too hot-headed or bullheaded to see it as a, as a gift and a, th- a kindness instead of taking it as an offense. And near on as I can figure, that's the closest I can come to for an emotive. And have there been other theories posited over the years? Has anyone speculated on something other than that? I mean, obviously, we've already discussed the potential assassination element of being paid by the criminal underworld in Deadwood. But is there anything else anyone's come up with? Uh, there were a couple of articles that people wrote in the papers saying, "Oh yeah, I remember this incident happening. You know, uh, Bill was down there and he was in Abilene. He was the marshal and." Well, he went into this baker's office or baker's store and he uh he goes up to the counter and he asks for a couple of rolls so the baker provides it and then asks for payment well bill was didn't take a you know any payment out so he grabs the baker's head pulls it down on the counter puts his pistol and shoots him kills him wow and he goes up to the next store it's a saloon well jack mccall's brother happened to be the one running that saloon so he does the same thing gets a couple of shots of whiskey refuses to pay McCall's brother starts to get in his face about it, so he just grabs his brother, shoots him, and kills him. And now McCall, being distant enough that he hears a couple of gunshots, but he doesn't know exactly what's going on, grabs his pistol and comes out, and, and according to the story, he confronts Bill on Main Street with his pistol drawn, and he tells him to get out of town. And Hickok complies wow. and decides to leave. Well, now, <laughs> what we know about Bill, that's not going to happen. Right. Bill, certainly at that time, would not have left without a fight. Somebody comes out and brandishing a pistol, no way. But people wanted to, I think, think of him as the underdog. This is the era we have the Robin Hoods coming out, like Sam Bass, the Robin Hood of Texas, or Jesse James, where these little guys who are, right. uh, they're fighting against the big bad government. Right. And people see them as heroes, fighting against the government in the form of Bill Hickok. Okay. Uh, and so uh, even, if we, even if they, obviously, like you said, if... Jack McCall comes out in the street and calls out Wild Bill Hickok. If that had actually happened, that, that story would have ended much differently. We wouldn't even have the, the events in Deadwood years later. But also the idea that Hickok would have just point-blank murdered two people to lead up to that event is so absurd that yes. that part's not even believable before you even get to the part <laughs> about, about McCall calling out Hickok. That's just such an aggressive and extreme move, yeah. not only for a guy who, like Hickok, wasn't that type of person, but he was also a lawman. The idea that, as a marshal, he would have just murdered two murdered people, two people without for, for getting bread and whiskey uh, is, is pretty extreme, too. Yeah. So that story, obviously, is, is a little bit aggressive a little bit on the extreme side of things. Yeah, about as ordinary as he ever got was when he was with uh, Bill Cody doing the Scouts of the Plains, and they would give him pistols full of blanks, and he'd walk up to the extras as they were dead on the ground, 
fire next to their pants and start their pants on fire. <laughs> Which is a little bit ornery. Yeah. That's about as aggressive as I think as he got. Yeah, yeah, but I think. Bill was always a prankster. Well, and, that, that's, and that's certainly funny, but also much, much further away from just straight up execution yeah. murders. <laughs> because you didn't want to pay for two rolls of bread. Mm-hmm. That's pretty aggressive. All right, great. Thanks a lot, Ty. We appreciate your time today. We've gone through a couple different elements of the Jack McCall trial. Uh, we, we really appreciate your knowledge and your time. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me on. I'm here with two of the owners of the Saloon Number 10 here in Deadwood, South Dakota. We want to talk about their experience on the set of the TV show Deadwood. My three interviewees this morning have all been on the set. You guys all got to participate. You all got to see what it was like, which makes all the rest of us who just watched the show very jealous. So why don't you all introduce yourselves and then tell us about your experiences. Uh, I'm Lori Keane. I'm Louis Lalonde. I'm James Olson. Now, Louis, why don't you jump in and, and tell us how this all came about. You guys were able to go to set after, I guess, some of the actors came here to visit uh, South Dakota, visit Deadwood, for like a site visit or something like that. Tell me about how all that came around. We made some very, very um, genuine friendships with um, a handful of them. When they came up for a, I was somewhat of a premiere, come to Deadwood and, and meet the um, meet the actors, and, okay. and um, we hosted uh, a wine dinner in okay. this uh, here at the number ten. Okay. And, and along with that, you know, the whole city and anybody involved really got to know them a lot better. Okay. I, Lori and I and Jim, you know, pushed a little bit more, and and we deepened those friendships by, um, you know, making a point of of going out there. Uh, so you guys had met uh, the actor who many people will certainly recognize as Dan Doherty, W. Earl Brown, yep. when he came here to Deadwood with most of the cast. Is yes. that how that friendship developed? Yep. They all came out here to see the town, maybe do a little promotional type thing, and you guys became friends with him. And so when you were in Los Angeles, you got a hold of him to see if maybe you could go visit the set. It was cold, surprisingly cold. And I was wearing my saloon number 10 letter jacket. Okay. Which is, you know, maybe one of the few letters I've earned. <laughs> and... Uh, and I'm standing there, and I'm, there's a bunch of people standing around. I said, what's going on? He says, well, they're filming in the building. So they had a little tent set up, and I, Marty and I walked over there. and They had like a, a, a television, only it was a, a tunnel to the real television so they could see the filming. So I stuck my head in, and I'm watching it. As I'm sitting there, somebody comes, or standing there, Somebody comes up beside me and says, what are you doing? I look over and I said, looks like I'm getting in your way. And he laughed and says, I'm David Mills, who are you? And I introduced myself. And we talked for a little bit. And he says, do you want to be in this show? I said, sure. <laughs> and that's how we got invited the next day. Ah, okay, so you just went for just a regular visit on one day and then... Yes. With Earl Brown. Yeah, with, with Earl. And then your interaction with David Mills got you guys an entree to come back. Yeah. Um, Milch is another good guy. Yeah, he was. He actually came to Deadwood um, uh, and did a lot of research before even filming the show. And did he? I think he was here for two or three weeks, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I never actually yeah. dealt to him, but I know some of the uh, our blackjack dealers downstairs dealt to him and met him and and did got a real feel for what the town was all about. And 
Oh, fantastic. I'd never heard that story. I, I assumed he had done a ton of research. I'd heard various stories about all the different reading he had done and, and everything. You can tell by the dialogue and some of the little details that he obviously did a lot of research, but I didn't know he actually came here and spent some significant time here before the show got started. It makes sense. Yeah. I, I can understand. So, so then, so you, you, you had your first day, your, your visit. So tell me about the second day. Tell me about going back and potentially preparing to be extras on the show. We had to be there early. We yeah. had to be there that at was, seven in the morning for yeah. makeup. And it right. was like, it was fun. I liked it. It was like there. an hour. You didn't have to wear makeup, Jim. Yeah, I did. Oh. yeah exactly. <laughs> so we didn't get to wear makeup. Yeah, so no. So Lori and I were prepared. We you were told in me not to shave. We were ready to, you know, you, when you of being beautiful, glamorous. <laughs> yeah. Right. So tell me about the two parts that you guys were potentially going to play in the show. Let's start with you guys. I'm not going to say what I want to say. <laughs> we we were elected to be. To be whores. Whores, yeah. yeah. We were whores, and we wanted to be really pretty whores, and, and we went into costuming. That was our first first part. And the first thing they said is that we couldn't wear our bras. Do you remember yeah. that? Yep, exactly. And that we had to take all of our makeup off. Yep. Those girls don't wear any makeup. Really? No, yeah. and they no wanted makeup. to cut our fingernails. They wanted to color our hair. Even. <laughs> they and put extensions in our hair. The hair people weren't happy that we were there, because there were no... There weren't supposed to be any women on set that day. Okay. We were just kind of a fluke. Right. <laughs> right. Oh. And yeah. I think, as Laura, I think as we talked about previously, you guys were you assigned to the Bella Union or the Gem? I think it, we were at the Bella Union. The Bella. I say yeah. based on the picture we we've the seen Bella of you guys Union. in your full costume, it looked like you were probably yeah. part of the Bella Union crew ritzy, over there. At least yeah. we were ritzy. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we were across. I don't think that costume looked very ritzy though. <laughs> we were across the street. Yeah. We, so Jim, tell me about you. You. Your well, experience there. We were supposed to cross, and the shooting takes place. The Earp brothers are loading their wagon. Okay. And we walk across the the mouth of the of the alley, as the Pinkerton guy comes in, he says something, and Morgan shoots him. Yeah. And we must, must have walked across there a dozen times. And each time was never quite right. The director finally yells at us and says, you just heard a shot, what do you do? And I said, well, in real life, I hit the ground so I don't get my ass shot off. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually are on camera. You got to be there. Did you guys actually make it into the episode? I, we did. They did, but did. what Lori and Lo I... Lori and Louie, you guys... We, they cut for lunch and then we, we politely... We quit. Yeah, we politely told <laughs> we did. We weren't having any <laughs> we fun because we didn't like our hair. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Time we're brats. So your, your time as Bella Union employees was very short-lived. Very we brief. quit. We they said, <laughs> all right, we're done. We quit. <laughs> <laughs> they AP did Lyle, have a small flask of vodka. The producer of the show. <laughs> we met him during lunch, and we, and we just said, "We're just. We're, I think we were going to quit. I think we're done." Yeah. We weren't <laughs> supposed to be here anyway. There weren't supposed really to be women on the set really, anyway. Yeah, so right. this really isn't. Right. Our cup of tea. <laughs> well, so then, so you guys actually got to, to be there, and that's obviously one of the big jealousies of many of us fans. We have seen it, we can imagine what it was like, but can you tell us what the set was actually like? The claustrophobic nature of it, the mud it everywhere, was, all of that. It was really pretty magical. It, it really was. was. It was amazing. Like, I have always thought if you could recreate any day in after growing up in Deadwood, any day just for curiosity's sake, what would it be like to have? been here in Deadwood in 1876 when the the sounds and the smells and the mud right. and the big oxen rolling into town and and the stagecoach and and the pianos and and just the energy just alone the smells think of that i mean what would it have been like
Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Deadwood Stories. Like I've said before, we've got some big things on the horizon, so stay tuned for news about the show. We'll see you soon. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.